close call with death. Have you had one? I have. I've had a lot of them, but who's counting? In this session, we'll talk about the events of those of us that have come dangerously close to death and had the great luck or destiny to elude death and carry on. Enjoy the show. A Close Call with Death podcast series today with Fatu Matongi. Fatu is the brother of Sam Matongi, who I interviewed in session 11, who lost both of his hands in a tragic electrical shock of over 14,000 volts going through his body. Fatu experienced a very serious and similar experience, nearly losing his life on a power pole. Rescued by a team member and friend in a heroic move, Fatu is here to relate his story and his outlook on life as a survivor. Sometimes they say lightning doesn't strike in the same uh, place twice, but just ask the Matangi brothers. Fatu, welcome to the show. So just recently, um, I interviewed Sam, I talked to your brother, and that was a couple months ago. He was episode number 11, and he was fascinating talking to him about what hap- happened to him, which is v- almost very, very similar to what you, we're going to be talking about today with you. And um, so you were injured, and uh, my son-in-law, Ricky Roby, and his friends, um, they were able to be on site there and, and rescue you from your incident. Before we get into that, why don't we talk a little bit about you? Why don't you tell me about you, Sam, or um, Fatu? Yeah, so different from Sam a little bit. Sam was born in Utah. I was born in Hawaii. My family moved back to Hawaii in 1980, and I was born in 1980. And then we came to Utah. We had a bunch of family that lived in the house with us. Uh, I think Sam talked about that. Uh, my parents were like, my dad's side was all immigration, immigrants from Samoa. So we had a lot of uncles and aunties that lived in our house as I grew up, um, went to high school at Cyprus, played football ever since I was like eight years old. My dad thought I was going to be some NFL superstar that I wasn't, um, you could have been, I mean, whatever you, you play football, you play since you're eight, so you get good, but my dad went to prison when I was a, right between junior and senior year. So mm. when he went to prison, I had to stop playing football. Sam Sam stopped going to college so that we could all work together and pay the rent. So just like a early on, I knew how to try to prioritize and take care of people, I think, from that experience. Sure. I went on a mission with me and my brother left the same exact day, so... We went to like the mission training center together and I was glad he was there just because, I mean, when you're a kid and you're like 19 years old, leaving your house is always sucky. Well, and especially your house, but you you had a house full. You had quite a few family members that you were very close to. Yeah. And and when you leave them, like it's hard because your dad's not there. So they don't have this, this primary income. So my, what my my oldest sister was paying for mortgage and everything. My mom was on disability. So when me and Sam left, it was like you're losing this economical impact on right. the family. And you're, you're concerned about that. But I'm, I'm like a 19-year-old kid, so I'm stupid. Like, I just want to go on a mission. And so I'm glad Sam goes with me. So Where, he, where did you go? Where'd I you went go on to Ventura, California. Sam went to Brazil. 
So we'd like write letters back and forth to each other. And I send him pictures and I'm fat because I'm eating all this food in California. (laughs) Sam looks like he's starving because he's in Brazil. I'm praying that he's going to gain weight and he's praying that I'm going to join some diet. (laughs) So, yeah, that's, I mean, then I got home from my mission. When I got home from my mission, I met my wife, like the, I got home Wednesday. I met her on Friday. I had a bunch of friends that wanted to go to a dance. they seem like they're always scared of girls. So I was like their wingman. So I get to this dance and I just can't wait to dance with girls and talk to them. Cause when you're on a mission, you have these rules that restrict you from talking or hanging out with girls. And I miss that so much. So, yeah. Yeah. So I get to this dance and I meet my wife. And when I meet my wife, like she's from a completely different area than me. And I don't know this until like the third day, but she's from the east side where all the rich people ride. And I'm from the poor side out in Magna. So it's like, I need a really good job. Um, And I don't like, because, because my dad went into prison when I was in junior years, I didn't, I had an ACT score, but it wasn't high. It was like an 18. So I couldn't get, I couldn't get directly into college. I didn't even know how to get into college. So when an uncle came up to me and was like, Hey, you should look into line work. If you get into that, they'll pay you very well. And did you even know at the time what line work is to define that? What is line work? I had no idea. Like, so line work is when a person builds power lines. Um, My uncle, the only thing that indicated that he built power lines was that he wore rough pants and long sleeve shirts. And you do, you use those uh, when you're a lineman because they're protection, they're safety gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and all I knew was my uncle made, a, he made good money. Like he, he looked like he owned his house, which is something that seemed rare in my family. And then he also lived in nicer areas with more affluence. So, um, when he came and just told me how much they got paid by an hour when you're an apprentice, you made like 1897. This is back in 2001. I just get home from my mission. 9-11 happens. The economy collapses. And then my uncle's like, hey, you can get paid $19 an hour. I'm like, you're all in. I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that easy. Um, my uncle's, he's kind of like fresh off the boat, like just as a joke. This is how you talk to each other when you're in that family. And he's just like, <laughs> hey, you know, just go stand under a pole and some mucklehead will set, tell you to send him tools. And then you send him the tools if you like him. And if you don't, then you send him the wrong tools. And he gets mad. But <laughs> who cares? Because you're getting paid, right? So that's that's how my uncle is. Like, love the guy. So mm-hmm. he's like, hey, do you want to be a, do you want to become a lineman? I got this rich girlfriend that I need to pay to hang out with. Um, who who's always like whenever we're dating she was paying for everything so she's awesome but like eventually one day when you get older you had to step up yeah you're like man i gotta be a man so yeah i gotta pay for my girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) well and 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 in my conversation with sam he indicated how you guys have just such a strong work ethic that going and working hard and not depending on anybody else is really ingrained in your body for sure like we grew up We grew up poor and our dad would take us to clean theaters when we were young. So he'd wake us up at two in the morning and Sam would do this thing called blowing. He'd hold a blower and he'd blow popcorn to the bottom of the theaters. And then me and my little sister would go sweep it up. And we did that ever since we were a kid waking up at two in the morning from like when I was six years old to when I was 
about 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. So we just had this. And then you're playing football, so you work. Work is like all that we know. Yeah. So, yeah, we're good. we were good at working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you reflect back on that, you realize, you know, you got a good start. Um, yeah, and it so, helps. Like, it helps after you get injured. So it's... It helps you fight back and, and not give up. For sure. For sure. Um, we're going to get into that here in just a minute and talk about um, how you got hurt. Um, so we're going to go from your family. You're now uh, married. You've And talk about that. How long have you been married and children? Yeah, so we got married in... I met her in 2001. We got married a year after 2002. I was already an apprentice. Um, everything looked super good. <laughs> we I moved... My first area was Cedar City, so me and my wife, we moved down there um, so I can be a first-step apprentice. In the apprenticeship, there's seven steps. Um, you move up every six months. This was my first step, and we're down there. We get an apartment. We live there for a while. Uh, like, when you're first married, you're just poor, like, you no know, matter how much you're making. So my wife moves down to Cedar. Every, at the end of every month, we have, like, 50 bucks. Yeah, um, but were you guys happy? Oh, yeah, you're always happy. Like, yeah. we live by Vegas, so we'd go down to Vegas and play around with the money that we have, but you're just young and dumb, so you, you don't have kids, so you just spend money how you want to. Sure. Um, and it's super enjoyable. You don't have to share yet. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then after six months, I move up to Bountiful, we're working in Layton. We start buying a house. Um, my first kid didn't come until about a, yeah, it was a year before I got injured. So he came. Like, there's always the responsibilities of learning to take care of your family. But like, with, like with work ethic, like I said, like I was a worker, so I build power lines. That's what I do, and mm-hmm. it, it supplies money for my family. So. I'm pretty isolated when it comes to taking care of my family. My my wife's learning all the other attributes, like taking, changing stinky diapers and weird stuff like that. And I'm just working every day. That's, yeah. that's my thing. And Bringing in the paycheck. Yeah, we're looking forward to the weekend where hopefully our Shalisa's parents will watch our kids so we can go on dates and spend money. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Okay, well, you know, um, at what time of your life did this accident happen how old were you when when, uh your accident happened so my accident happened in 2008 so i was 28 um fairly established like we had a house we're our plan was to pay it off in 10 years we're about four years into it um i was making way more money than i ever was used to having like you grow up poor you're used to getting by with hardly anything so when I became a lineman, I'm getting paid a lot of money. And when I bought this house in Bountiful, we, we made sure we bought in, in our spending range. And my wife, she pitched in also before Makai was born, my first son. So we were just piling all our money into this house, mm-hmm. um, which was really good. Like we're paying extra towards the principal. I'm working every day. Um, really good time in my life. Like I'm healthy, like, I would run half marathons and things just because like physically I loved having a body that was just vibrant. So I'd play basketball with Sam. Sam's big time basketball. We hate each other when we play basketball. So, <laughs> so I just trying my best to beat him every time I play him. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but you like stuff you just take for advantage. Like you never know about 
how grateful you are for those things until they're gone. So Right. Okay, so let's take me to that day. Tell me what happened, where were you, and how did it go down? So I'm working on a power line crew. Uh, about a year before that, I was working on a night crew making a lot of money um, just because you would work overtime and double time, and you were gone a lot, and I got sick of that. So I started to complain to my boss, and my boss moved me off the crew, which I didn't really want, but it, he moved me away, like up to Heber, which was like an hour away from my house. And as, as they were doing that, I started to apply to the power company because I knew that you could get a job and be close to your house if you're at the power company. It's more stable. So I started doing that, and then a new contractor moved into Utah, and they were undercutting all the jobs that were in Utah because they were trying to get jobs. So as they're undercutting these prices, um, they have all these jobs flood into the market because the power company starts to work through that subcontractor to get jobs done. And I wanted to be close to home, so I quit my job in Heber. Actually, it was Wyoming because they moved me from Heber to Wyoming. And then I quit that job and moved to this company. And when I got on this company, there was a boss that I had that he'd been injured several times by being elect not electrocuted, but shocked um, with high voltage. And I got put on his crew with Steven, who's my hot apprentice, and with another cold apprentice. Um, and we're working jobs. And as we're working jobs, I'm starting to notice that they're shorting time. Um, and they're also doing things hot and energized. They're working on lines that are electric, that have electricity on them when they should take outages. And as I'm working, I'm feeling unsafe and I'm telling Steven inside the truck that I'm going to quit. I take a week off. Um, I want to quit, but I, I'm just locked into this job because I make so much money. Were you just feeling in your gut that um, things just were not right and that, um, you know, it's a little, it's danger to the point where you need to really find a different team or a different job or something to be safe? That's exactly it. Yeah. So I was getting ready to quit. I got in the truck with Steven one day and I told him, I'm going to quit. Like, I'm done. And he's like, it's unsafe here. Don't quit until I get transferred. Um, so I stayed. And then, like, weeks went by. My boss was telling me about a job that I thought we should take an outage on. Um, and it, talk about that. What is it, uh, taking an outage uh, doing? So when you take an outage, you, there's several customers that are on power lines. To take the power out, you just walk down to an area that a lineman can see, and you turn that power off. But when you do that, everybody's meters stop turning, so the power company stops making money. So it's not something that the power company's super excited about. And if the subcontractor is telling them that we're not going to take outages, then the power company's just like, well, you just said you're not going to take outages. So I understand my boss was under this pressure, um, and that's why I wanted to quit. So you're working under live power. They, they never cut the power, and you're having to do the things you do to repair the lines uh, with it live. Lots of volts going through it. Yeah, several times. Like, that's the hard thing about the specific job that I was on. I don't remember it. I just remember the, the tension building up to it. Yeah. Um, and I know that I wanted to take outages. But the specific day, I don't remember. I only remember waking up and then 
missing Stephen and asking my wife where he was and two weeks being gone and finding out that he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's oh. all I remember. And, and how long did you work with Stephen? You, you guys are friends. You, you worked together for a while? I worked with Stephen uh, probably four months. Mm-hmm. But when you're a lineman, four months is an eternity. Like, you're working 7,200 volts every single day. Every single day you're working with that voltage, you know. So your like life is on the line. If something literally. messes up, you could die. That's the way it is. Right. So it's like working the most dangerous job with a stranger, but that stranger becomes your best friend. Because yeah. if I'm holding this line and you're holding this line and I let go, you're going to die. If you let go, I'm going to die. So your life is in you your become, friend's hand. Yeah, you become intertwined mm-hmm. over three days. Um, we worked with each other for I think two months. I can't even remember the dates. I just remember all the details that me and him talked about, like his family um, going to Raging Waters because it was sun summer. And every every day on Monday, we'd get together and be like, dude, how was running? Because he would run also. And he'd be like, one day he got beat up. Like, what was it? He got hit by a car. He's running down the street. Some person hits him with a car. He comes to work and he's all bruised up and he had this black eye. And I'm like, hey, Steve, what happened to your face? And he's like, I got jumped on the road. And he leads me on for like two hours. And I'm like, dude, I can't believe that happened. And then he's like, I'm just kidding. I got hit by a car. Oh, my Um, gosh. (laughs) So he's like leading me. I remember all these details about Steven. And then when you wake up, you find that. He's gone, right? And because the way line work works, you feel guilt. Um, you feel pride because he's your like he's willing to die for you. You feel guilt because you know that it's partially your fault. You feel like you want you're angry at your boss because your boss sent you to this job and you know that you wouldn't have done the job unsafe because you grew up in this apprenticeship for four years learning all about safety and you've been alignment and that's all you care about. Um, so you try to find blame, but like, it's not like blame's going to do anything. You just like suffer. That blame <laughs> just kind of like, it creates a gravity feeling in you, just a real heavy feeling to where it, it can lead to anxiety and depression and, and modes of that. Right. For sure. Like it's hard to explain because, you know that, you know that your best friend that you're, or I mean, best friend, whatever you want to call him, your coworker, you know that they loved you because they're trying to save you, right? Um, and they know the dangers also, and you know you would have done the same thing, but as a lineman, it's different than as an apprentice, because as a lineman, you wish that they they wouldn't save you, because you'd rather have that, you'd rather have that um, pain by yourself. And then when a, an apprentice tries to save you, like they're innocent, like they don't know everything that's on the line. So when they pass away trying to save you, you feel more guilt because you're like, man, save yourself, man. I, just let me be up here by myself. Um, when was that, Fatu? How, how many years ago was that? 2008. And so does it just come back on you? It does. It's yeah. like... 
I, I had PTSD for a couple of years. It hampered my school. I still passed, but it drains on everything in your life. Like you get home, you don't, it's survivor's guilt is basically what it is. You get home, you don't feel like you should be home. You, you wish that Steven was home instead. Um, and then you just suffer. Like the only reason you pull through it is because you have a wife that's hanging on you and you got a kid that's hanging on you. So you try to do your best, but you, I mean, not until you're talking about it, does it all come back? But yeah, everybody asks, like, here's this dude with one arm that's inside my class. Hey, how'd you lose your arm? And, and then you come up with some ideas to try to defend yourself. You're like an alligator bit me or you make up some stories. Yeah. Um, because you don't know how intimate you want to be with these people, but right. eventually you run into people that you're okay with sharing the information and then time heals it. Um, I was lucky that I got involved with, I mean, and then you have my brother, it happens to him. So you're trying to, you're trying to hide what he has to go through because you you've been through it, but you also want to share it. Cause you're like, I wish I had somebody that would tell me everything that I was going to go through. Um, so that I could be shielded and you try to weave that line. But when you, when you walk in on your brother who lost, who's going to lose both arms, but is in denial, like you're just, it's just hard. You just look at him and you wish you could take it away. Sure. Oh my gosh, Fatu, when you heard about Sam getting injured the same way you did, what did you think went, went through your mind? I didn't have anything on my mind. I think that's what I learned when I got injured was to, to forget everything. Not to hide it and forget it, but just to, just to keep it and focus on what's exactly in front of you mm-hmm. to be present. So when I my sister called and was crying and she's like, your brother's hurt and he got injured. I was just like, where's the plane flight? I got to go. I got there, saw my brother, um, the doctors, he's trying to open his hands and like his fingers move, but they don't, they don't have the flexibility that they usually do. He doesn't have the individual control of fingers. And I'm like, you're just going to lose your hands. And he's like, no, I want to see. And I'm like, yeah, I know. Um, so just being there was all that was important. Um, I just wanted to be there. Like, and you were, yeah. and you were, For and sure. he said that you brought him great comfort and, and it was unusually, um, coincidental, you know, that, that you happen to have the same kind of injury. You could truly know how, what he's feeling like and what he's going to be going through. And you could, he said you were a great help, uh, to him. Um, so, you know, just, in, when someone's listening to this podcast and they can't really see you sitting here in front of me like I can, you have no arm, no right arm. Um, tell me what in that accident with that voltage, what happened and why are you missing your arm up to your shoulder now? So from what I under, what happens when you get electrocuted, when you're a lineman, you're working with lines and there's these lines that are de-energized. It's called the neutral. There's three lines above you. Those are called phases. All of them carry 7,200 volts. If you get between a phase and a, and a neutral or a phase and a ground, a phase and anything that, ha- that has the capacity to carry voltage, the voltage will transfer from 
where you touch it to where it wants to exit. And that's what happened with me was um, I, I don't know because nobody knows because the doctors can't, couldn't track the electricity. But I think it hit me in the arm, went through my legs, popped out of my legs because it got burn marks on my legs. There's also a burn mark where my arm was amputated. That was where the exit, the biggest explosion happened where the, the voltage just fired out of my body and it burnt everything between my forearm, my shoulder, um, my inner pec. Uh, that was exposed down to the bone. Um, so yeah, it's, it's called getting into series. And when you get into series, you become the path for the electricity. So the, the path will travel, the 7,200 volts will path travel from whatever you touch it with your ankle, your arm, your fingers to the other place, which was my shoulder for Sam. It was, he touched from one hand, um, to the other hand and he, he took a wire and he uncoiled it. It touched the line, gotten series. He was the series. It went through one hand and out the other hand, and it destroyed everything between. Went probably went through his vital organs and his heart. And yeah, it jumps. It goes wherever it needs to. Nobody yeah. knows where it, where it does. Luck. Supposedly, if it went through his heart, it would have stopped. So I my my thoughts are it traveled outside of his body on his sweat or whatever whatever path. Um carried the most um, capacitance to carry the electricity. And so, so Fatu, were you, you and Stephen both up there on top of the pole together in the You were both working that site together? In, in yeah, a, so, so usually in Utah, the way it works is when you're sent to a job, if you're a line crew, you have four people. You have a grunt, a, a hot apprentice, Okay, you have a cold apprentice, which is a grunt, a hot apprentice, and then you have a lineman, and then you have a foreman. It takes four person, four people to be on a job. The hot apprentice and the lineman work on the line together. Um, they're the only ones authorized to work on 7,200 volts but besides the foreman, but the foreman has to stay on the ground so that if anything happens, he can contact whoever he needs to to get him off the line. The cold apprentice sends everything to work on the line to the hot apprentice or the lineman. Um, and I, me and Steven, yeah, we were both up on top of the power pole. We had our gaffs in our feet. We were using our belts. Um, I, I don't know. I, th I think that we were supposed to take an outage, but I don't know. I can't yeah. remember that job. Yeah. So, so you had a team member climb that pole and, get you down. And, and it's my understanding that people on site, uh, police fire, um, they, nobody really knew what the heck to do while that was still live and stuff. Who was going to get you down? Who got you down? Yeah. So I got hit with 7,200 volts. I lay down in my belt. I'm about 25 feet in the air. Steven's already hit. Um, he's laying down, uh, and then people from outside start coming because the power's out power completely goes out. What they have is this thing called a three-phase uh, three phase closure, I think. I can't remember what they're called. But it the way the line works is it hits once to, to burn everything off of it. Like if a limb falls on, the 7,200 volts is running on the line. If the tree limb falls on it, it the reclosure will hit really hard, 7,200 volts, to try to burn that limb off. 
And then a second time it will hit. And if there's something on it, it will hit even harder so that it will burn whatever's on it. So I get hit once, twice, and then a third time when it hits, it completely shuts off. And then when that shuts off, everyone, all the customers' power is off. So everyone starts walking outside. They see two line, two people hanging on the power poles. They start to call the authorities. My foreman's already called the, the dispatch because he's trying to figure out how to shut the line off because he doesn't know if it's on or off. So he starts walking the line with the cold apprentice trying to figure out how to shut it off. They're walking around for like 45 minutes because the maps are mismarked or I don't know why, but they can't turn the line off. And then eventually the power company calls uh, Aaron Carrillo, who's my wife's like cousin or something, who works and builds power lines and is also a lineman. He shows up to the job. I'm, I suspect he's with the whole crew because I don't, I, I don't know. I wasn't awake. But he finds the way to shut it off, shuts it off, cuts everything to the ground. It's been like an hour. Everyone's watching us. And you're still hanging up there. We're still hanging up there. Uh, Carrillo grabs a hand line, throws his tools on, climbs up the pole, sees if Steven's alive. He's not. Climbs to me, sees if I'm alive, hooks the hand line to the pole, connects the hand line to me, cuts my belt, drops me down the pole, and then they move me to a helicopter and then Aaron Carrillo cuts the other person down, and then then he has to go to the next job because that's how line work happens. Like, my gosh, you got jobs to do. Yeah, I imagine that was hard on everybody that was there. Um, yeah. So you're taken where to what hospital? I'm taken to the University of Utah Hospital. Um, I'm knocked. Oh, out. the burn center. The burn center. I'm knocked out. Shalise has been calling all day. She calls me every day at lunch. So she's calling. Nobody's answering. Eventually, like, an uncle calls. One of her uncles calls and says, hey, I, I heard a lineman died on the news. Oh, gosh. Where's your, brother, where's your husband working? She's like, I don't know, but it's probably not him because the accident was in Murray, and that's a, a municipality, so that's a different power company. So she didn't think it was me. But she takes a shower anyway. When she gets out of the shower, there's like 5 million calls on the caller ID, and they're all from the University of Utah Hospital. So she's worried, and the phone rings. She picks it up, and they're like, hey, we got your husband, and he got burnt. She doesn't know how um, much. So she calls her dad, tells her to come over. Like Our anniversary is the 31st, and this accident, I think, is like the 28th. So she's like, oh, we're good, like, He'll be fine. She doesn't have any clue what's going on. And when they get to the hospital, she meets one of the therapists, the psychologist, and she's like, just to let you know, your husband's not going to look the same as he did before, and then opens the curtain, and she sees me, and I'm swollen and wrapped up like a mummy, and she doesn't know. She's, she's like, well, I guess I'm not going to have this... <laughs> this uh, anniversary celebration with my husband, but she doesn't know that I'm in a coma and that I'm going to be in there for two weeks in a coma. Mm. She doesn't know I'm going to be in the hospital for four months. I mean, two months complete. She's just, she unfolds the couch into a bed and then spends two weeks there. Oh my gosh. That is brutal. Horrible. Um, I want to go to, um, 
you know, post experience now, just how have you been able to cope, Fatu? You know, with, with this kind of thing going on with you, how how has the last eight years gone? How have you coped with this? So coping, like. I do a lot of things to cope. Like one of my favorite things is to just live in the moment. I think a lot of times when tragedies happen, we get trapped inside these things because they're so traumatic and we forget like what it's like to be happy and laugh. And for me, recovery was trying to find that again. And so, I mean, it might sound twisted, but me, when my brother got injured, it really helped me because it refocused um, on trying to help my brother. But it also helped me because he's just as twisted as I am. Like, we can look at something like losing our arms and laugh at it because it's in the past mm-hmm. and we live in the present. So as I, as I recovered, there was this thing called burn camp that happened for the burn survivors at the U of U hospital. And what it is, is like a community of people who have been burnt like me. And we got on this river and we're going down this river with all these survivors. I don't know all these people, like they're strangers, but at least they've been through a crappy situation just like I have. Mm -hmm. And I also have my brother with me. So when water fights happen, like there's this guy named Brad who's like the coolest nurse ever that he was a nurse when I was in the hospital. When Sam came back to Utah, he went to the U of U hospital first and he met Brad. So he's this goofy dude that just like wants to destroy you in water fights. And me and Sam don't have arms. So we have like no protection. No defense. We got like squirt guns and we can't squirt them. And (laughs) we're looking at, we're looking at our best, one of our buddies named Quimby. And we're like, yo, grab a squirt gun, bro. Like squirt people. You're working with like these two handicapped people that cannot defend themselves. You can't get to the picture that we need somebody to defend us. And he's just laughing because he's like, bro, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> and then we have another guy named Jason who lost his arm. Um, and we're all just like, three of us are trying to use this squirt gun. And we have one hand, mine, and then Jason's hand, which has three fingers on it. And he's holding one end. I'm holding the other end. Sam's got his stumps up there trying to aim this, like trying to get the projection correct. And we're all like suffering and shooting this squirt gun but having and, a ball but doing laughing it. Yeah. yeah and and that's the thing like when you get to that point in recovery where you can start laughing at how crappy everything is there's this weird recovery that happens and you start to become like invincible it's like a healing for sure it's it is and and if you can transfer that to other people who are in the same situation um, and it's not about you trying to prop yourself up because you, oh, look it, I'm recovered. It's just you want people to come out of the same like hell that you had to go through quicker than you had to. Um, and I think that's something that me and Sam um, tap when we're together. Um, a lot of times we get invited to friends' houses or Sam does speeches because he's cool. I've done speeches, but it doesn't mean you're cool. It's just... You care. You care, for sure. Um, yeah. 
I mean, that's why I write. That's why I'm writing a book because it's hard to explain that. Like sometimes you get people, you're at a ski resort and they're just clapping because you're there and you're like, dude, you're patronizing me. Like, and then they'll, you'll sit on a chair with them and they're like, you're such an inspiration. You're like, thanks bro. Like, but I don't consider myself an inspiration. I just consider myself just a dude that's like trying to live my life. And if you find that inspiring, that's cool. But like, I promise majority of you, if you were in the same situation, would try to do the same thing because you want to live a life that's like fun still. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure you're going to find many times in your life ahead of you that are going to be fun. And so, which brings me to this next question. Um, Sam mentioned something that was really compelling to me, inspiring. And that is his arms don't define him, his heart and his head do. What defines you, Fatu? Um, my ability to take care of my family. I think mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It sounds super simple, um, but I've always gauged myself on the ability to take care of my family. It's the thing that has made me resilient. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for my family just because they give me motivation. Like a lot of people look at me and they're like, you're motivating to me, but I look at a lot of people as just as inspirational as I am. So or you're very humble. I don't know. You know what? If you could, if you could have this all taken away, would you? Or have you learned strength through this experience? Man, that's such a hard question. Um, because I'm the person that would be like, if you asked me that question, I would actually say, yeah, take it away from me. Give me my arm back. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? Yeah, for sure. But would I take away like what I've learned from it? No. Like, I guess the hope is that I'd that I'd be able to turn into the person I am today if I had two arms, if I didn't have to lose a friend and if I didn't have to get electrocuted. But the truth of the matter is I can't, I can't remove that. But the things that I learned from all the removal are things that I don't think I would have gained without losing an arm and a friend. Mm-hmm. I've gained more compassion for people. Um, I understand grief more. I cry with people when they lose somebody. Um, I used to, so I'm a churchy person, I guess. I was churchier before. Um, But now when people lose somebody, I'm not like, hey, don't worry, you'll see them in the next life. I'm more like, bro, it sucks to lose somebody. Like, I totally know what you're saying. I don't try to get them past it. I, I live with them in it. Because I understand that that's probably the thing they want more than just some answer. Uh, I'm more empathetic that way. So absolutely, it, I think I learned that more than anything was the ability to, to be with somebody when they're in pain. Love it. What would you say to Stephen now, your friend? What do you think, what do you think you want to say to him when you're thinking about him from time to time? I would say thanks. Like, I would have done the same thing for you. Um, I wish it wouldn't have happened like that. But thank you so much for doing it. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. 
Fatu, people that are going through th- tough things, um, similar to yours, different than yours, but they're going through tough things. What do you say to them? You've learned how to encourage people. What do you say? Life is hard. Um, it's okay to go through pain and be inside pain. But man, if if you don't get through this, then it's going to be a waste. Like, I don't care who you are. The, the biggest fear of my life is to live a life and then have it, have that time that was wasted be a large margin of my life. Uh, I, when I meet people that are in pain, I go, I go through pain with them. But like my hope is that they don't stay there. Like I remember being in the hospital and meeting people that and it's and you can't come you can't compare your injury to other people's injury but you do automatically and i remember getting out of the hospital and going back into the burn floor and seeing people and being like man i wish i could carry this for you and i understand that you need to be in this pain but i hope you get out of this because there's so much life out there um and i think that's my recovery like for me to get through recovery, I like I got on the U.S. Para- Paralympic team because I like to snowboard. Because snowboarding got me away from all my pain. Like I got into snowboarding a year before I got injured. I signed up for cheap um, lessons because I was because par- I was disabled. I was like used capitalizing on my disability. Sweet, I get a free. I get a cheap. Uh, pass? Shoot, I'm going to use that. So I use it. Some guy trains me how to snowboard better. He sees that I'm pretty good and that I'm athletic. So he's like, yo, you should race on this team. You might be able to make the Paralympic team. I'm like, sweet. That will keep my mind off of how sucky my life is. And I think it's fun. Like I get on the snowboard team. I'm like, I'm riding around with this guy that just wants me to be good with snowboarding. And I forget about everything. Like I'm really good at focusing on something when I like it. And I start snowboarding and my coach, we become like best friends, but eventually I have to leave him to be on the snowboard team, the U S one. And he's cool. He's cool with it. Cause he's like, yo, that's what I always wanted. And I wish I could be with you when you go race, but he ain't there. Like it's me that's at this race. That's right. It is you. And, and eventually like when you're going through this suffering, you got to realize like it's up to you to get it out. Like I'm down to come help you and to try and to give you motivation. But eventually you have to dig so deep just to get out. Um, and, and I wish I could transfer that. Like people talk about how me and Sam are inspiring and stuff. And I hope that transfers into that, but I never know. Um, but that's why we do what we do. Like, that's why Sam stays happy with the way, the way he is with losing arms is so that he can motivate people to be happy. Like, no matter what, like, oh, bro, you lost both freaking arms. How can you be happy? Sam's like, yep, I'm happy. I'm good because he wants everyone else to be happy. And he's also happy and he's figured out that happiness is something that you have to have individually by yourself. But he also knows 
that when you see somebody that's in that pain or in something that you think is super hard and they're living this high, high life, this life that's above what you would expect, it helps people to like reframe or restructure where they are and to find happiness. And, and I think that's all, that's Sam, man. He's so happy. I'm, I'm similar, but I'm a little bit more dark for some freaking reason. <laughs> but, but like, we're still goofy. Like we still can tap that happy, that laughter, but like we have to play with it when you're, when you're visiting patients. Cause you're, you're, you're just kind of like, you gotta be, you gotta be in their suffering. You can't push them past it because then all of a sudden you feel like, well, they might look at you like you want me to be somebody else. No, I don't, I, I don't want you to be somebody else. I want you to figure this out and I'm down to suffer and live here however long you want. But ultimate, ultimately, eventually, you got to be just like all of us who are still living, like who are still pushing to like be happy even in all this crap, like there's a way to do that. And I, like, I don't know the way, but I do know it's possible and happiness and laughing and finding yourself and finding that new person that is you, like what psychologists call the new you. That's a thing. And sure, psychologists don't know everything, but it sounds like a good expression to describe the person that you become after all this crazy well, suffering. Well, you, know what? You, you, you talk about Sam having this um, ability to make people happy around him and it's his goal to bring happiness, you know, to people that are going through ch- challenging times. But you know what, my friend, you have the same mentality. You, you approach it a little bit differently, but very much the same. And talking to the two of you, you're very much the same in kindness and dedication and grit Um, and you do motivate people, you inspire people. You got to let them have that moment of being inspired by you. You know, you, I know you don't want to play it down to where don't put me on a pedestal and make me the superhero. I'm just a guy going through a tough time, but I'm telling you when people see people like you doing it, living it and not giving up, that's inspiring. And if you let them enjoy that moment, um, it'll help you feel joy as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, um, you know, those were wonderful closing statements. Um, I usually will ask you, you know, just, is there any final thoughts or anything else knowing that your wife, your kids, your friends, uh, people go in the future, you don't know how many people this podcast is going to touch. What would you say in final comments? With that broad of an audience, I would just be like, just be happy. Like there's so much crap going on in this world. And I, and I think that's, what's been frustrating with me with this COVID thing and all these politics and all this drama is like people are tapping into other people's energy and like, it's all this bad energy and they're bringing it out in these random places that they wouldn't bring them out in, in normal occurrences. And if I was talking to that broad of an audience, I'd be like, yo, like, life is not that freaking hard. Like I've met people who have lost their eyebrows and their face and their lips and their shoulders and their skin and their arms and their legs. And then they go to these 
burn camps in the middle of Moab, riding down a river and a rainstorm comes in and lightning's flashing. And we figure out how to build a fire and smile and laugh. And we got all this pain. And then I go to like a Walmart and some dude's freaking out about politics that he can't control or some mask. And it's just like, yo, just lighten up. Like life is not that hard. Like you have so many good things in your life. Like we live in a country where like the poorest are richer than the poorest country in the world. And for some reason, because they're tapped into this outside source, they think that their life is draining and pithy and small. And you're like, dude, just live in the present, man. Like you, I have a wife, I have kids, I have food, I have a car. I can jump on an airplane if I pay money and fly through the sky in this crazy machine and land in another country or in the same country miles away, like in an hour or 50 minutes. And here you are like focusing on something you can't even control. So it's like, if I'd tell him anything, I'd tell him to like be more present, be control the things that you can and the things that you can't control. Like they probably don't matter that much. Um, so don't drag that into your life. Like life is way too big and way too exciting and way too fun to waste. <laughs> Don't waste time. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it, Fatu. Thank you so much, my friend, for, for being here and spending this time with me. Thank you and for taking this time of reflection and letting us share in your experience. Becoming a part of your journey ultimately impacts ours. So until we hear from each other again, Stay alive to tell about it. Yeah, buddy.